Welcome to the Untold Civil War podcast. Today, I'm with John Messner, curator and historian with 20 years experience working in museums. He has held the post of Curator of Transport and Technology at the Glasgow Museums since 2006. During that time, he was part of the project team that developed the Riverside Museum, winner European Museum of the Year 2013. In 2015, he co-curated a display about Glasgow's role in the American Civil War, which led to his work on the life of Jonas Wiley. Of course, this came out as a book, which he has written and I have a copy of, called A Scottish Blockade Runner in the American Civil War, Jonas Wiley of the Steamer Advance. But before we get started, there's a couple things I gotta mention. Uh, first of all, if you haven't checked out the website, please go do that. I'm going to leave a link in the show notes, okay, so you can check out the new website. On there, we've even got a store now. I'll be selling original CDVs and original Ambrotypes, so if you collect Civil War images, please check that out. We've got some really cool stuff there. We also have merch. Yes, the badge maker has teamed up with us to start producing some merchandise. And so we've got stickers. For those of you who wish to represent the Untold Civil War podcast, you can put it on your laptops, put it on your fridge, wherever you might put stickers and uh, represent the podcast. And also we've got painted tin cups. Yes, so uh, these are really cool. They're hand-painted by the badge maker. Uh, They look great. You can put them up by your bar. You can have them on your desk. Really recommend these items. I have one for myself. They're fantastic. And actually, I've had a lot of people show interest in them so i don't know how long they're going to stay in stock we're already down half the stock already so that's really cool i really thank you guys of course if you don't want to do that you can always subscribe and become a patreon subscriber that's another way that supports the show i really appreciate that that'll also give you the chance to uh, ask questions to our guests so it's a great way if you are doing any sort of research project or anything like that you can get direct access to these experts and without further ado Go ahead and keep the coal hot. Keep an eye out for those monitor class ironclads. And let's steam into some untold civil war. Couple things that make me really excited about this episode. Firstly, I love Scottish history, Scottish American history. I'm fascinated by it. One of my favorite regiments in the Civil War, of course, is the 79th New York Highlanders, who is a New York regiment that wore Scottish garb and were inspired by the exploits of the Scottish Highlanders, of course. And also, I think since we focus on untold stories, blockade running and naval history of the Civil War, I feel is very, very much untold. So thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about this topic. Thank you, Paul. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I've really enjoyed your podcast so far. And, and like you said, it's a, uh, the story of Jonas Wiley is, and blockade running in general, I feel sometimes does get overshadowed by definitely the land uh, aspects of the war, but also the, the more kind of glorified naval battles, both at at home in kind of closer waters and abroad. So it's great to be on. You know, I just mentioned how this story is relatively untold. How did you find this unique story? Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting because as you just said, in 2015, I worked with one of our curators at the museum and we 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 looked at Glasgow's role in the Civil War and that primarily were the steamers, the paddle steamers that were used to run the blockade. And Glasgow Museums has a great collection of ship models. The, most of these came from the actual companies that built the ships themselves. They're not amateur models. They were from the yards. And uh, several of these were blockade runners. So we developed a display looking at what, was, what were they were being used for, what they were transporting. And in the middle of that display, in addition to the models, we also have a really fine oil painting. 
and that oil painting of the Advance. And the Advance is one of the more well-known of, of these blockade runners. And its history is, is well-known. If you go to any book on blockade running, you'll, you'll find it there. But what interested me was on the, on the painting was a little plaque, and it said Jonas Wiley, who ran the American blockade. And it turns out I did a bit of digging, and the, the painting had been owned by this Jonas Wiley. And that was interesting because if, if you go to the, the books on, on the Civil War blockade running, especially Stephen Wise's book, Lifeline of the Confederacy, um, there's a mention of Jonas Wiley, uh, usually in the footnotes, or at least kind of more of a minor player on, on the vessel. And that just kind of piqued my interest because there's also a couple mentions in contemporary either diaries or other kind of uh, recollections that either said he was Scottish or he was English. We didn't know much about him, actually. We had no idea. So that kind of lent me to then go to look up kind of newspaper accounts here in the UK, in Scotland, just to see if that name, Jonas Wiley, hopefully would make a few hits. It's a bit more of a unique name. And sure enough, it did. And from there, we started to find out that he was, he was indeed Scottish. A lot of people in the 19th century get called English, where they were actually Welsh or Scottish or so on. Um, and he's from a place called Fife, which is a county uh, just north of Edinburgh uh, here in Scotland. And more and more kind of stories started popping up. And what re really interested me was a, a report of a lecture that he gave about his time as a blockade runner. And th this was several years ago, just after the display opened. And that just almost became a string for me to pull because I wanted to find out more about this guy. We were able to put a bit about his history into the display, but I found out more and more that it, it seems that he had a much bigger role uh, on the vessel than uh, was acknowledged either in contemporary accounts or in more recent uh, academic books on the subject. Uh, and that just then led to kind of looking at archives across the United States, uh, here in Britain, even as far as field in Australia and New Zealand, and really discovering his whole uh, maritime career which led up to his role uh, on the advance in 1863. And then what happened to him after, after he, um, he finished his time on the blockade and he finished his time at sea and then he came back, back here to Scotland and then he started giving these lectures about his time as a blockade runner. And that's one thing I really like about your book, how you open up with that scene of him presenting, which is a, a great lead into the story. Since we're talking a little bit about that theatrics, can you discuss the fascination and romance behind the idea of the blockade runner? I mean, we know him from Rhett Butler and Gone with the Wind. Jules Verne wrote the book, The Blockade Runners. Is there any truth to this romance? Um, I think that there's, there's definitely a bit of a spice sprinkled in because as with lots of things, when you make a drama out of it, sometimes it, it sounds like it's kind of drama all the time. And that wasn't the case for blockade runners. Uh, yes, indeed, they were sailing in from Nassau. They were sailing in from St. George's into places like Wilmington or Charleston, South Carolina, or, or Mobile, Alabama. And that was part of their job. And that was kind of the, the really interesting two or three days of their job. The rest of their job was basically sitting around waiting to do the returns. But in saying that, this kind of notion and this like, character of a blockade runner, definitely after the Civil War, here in Britain at least, and of course with Jules Verne, became this kind of modern... It's not a pirate because they're not, they're not fighting. They're not firing upon federal warships. They're not kind of engaging in battle, but it's still kind of cat and mouse. You're still kind of trying to evade the, the, the federal warships lurking outside these ports, but also in the ports themselves. And even in places like London, Glasgow, and Liverpool, there are agents moving about. 
There are American union agents or government agents uh, trying to find out which ships are being launched or which, which ships are being armed to become an actual armed raider, not a blockade runner. And there are Confederate agents moving around trying to purchase these vessels. And that all kind of spy, intrigue, kind of mysteriousness. Then if you add that into the whole, well, it's on the high seas and you're trying to evade these Union ships and, and the actual kind of natural uh, forces of the open water, it definitely became one of those almost kind of Victorian uh, kind of worthies or kind of comic characters. In addition to the, you know, the actual real life stories, and several were were published either within the lifetimes of, of the blockade runners. In, in addition to those actual real life stories, kind of fictionalized stories, definitely throughout the end of the 19th century, when the Civil War was still very fresh in the memory of, of a lot of people, were one of those kind of interesting high seas adventures. You know, it's a great story. And I would like to just, before we get into um, Wiley's career, is sort of paint the picture, set the scene for my listeners. So could you discuss Scotland's role in worldwide commerce? Sure. The Civil War obviously starts in 1861. One of Abraham Lincoln's first proclamations is to kind of establish this block. And we don't have enough time to kind of talk about the whole story of it. But throughout 1861 and early into 1862, it's pretty much a kind of a paper blockade. Most ports are still widely open. There are very few naval vessels available to control them. I mean, at the start of the war, there's a handful of Union vessels, no way they can patrol. So as the, the war progresses and as more vessels are either built or, or purchased by the Union Navy to patrol these, it becomes harder and harder for sailing vessels or deeper drafted uh, merchant vessels to make it in. They need something that's faster, something that's a bit more sleek, uh, that, that it's used to kind of going up and down rivers, uh, but they can still carry good cargo. And that's where Glasgow comes into Glasgow and Liverpool, both uh, very big shipbuilding uh, cities here in Britain. Uh, Glasgow had uh, been in the steamship business for 50 years at that time. You know, some of the first steamships in the world uh, are built in Glasgow. And you also have some of the best, so you have a combination of shipbuilding and some of the best uh, engine and boiler technology innovations. So Glasgow then, the ships that it's producing are being eyed as uh, a replacement for these larger and slower vessels. And the best ones to do that are these side wheel paddle steamers. Now, these are vessels primarily used up and down the coast of Britain, uh, kind of river vessels, maybe across to Ireland, across to, to the continent. They're not really open water vessels. They're not built for the North Atlantic or something like that. They, they don't do kind of cross Atlantic. But into 1862 uh, and early 1863, these are uh, the ideal vessels run the blockade. Like I said, they're, they're very fast. Uh, Wiley's vessel, the Advance, which was originally built as known as the Lord Clyde, could do 18 knots, which was basically faster than anything the Union Navy had or, or had throughout the war. And they were built to be able to uh, go up and down rivers, have a shallow draft. They, they didn't need, a lot of times, the most sophisticated kind of port harbor kind of um, infrastructure. So if there were places not... You know, Charleston and Wilmington and Mobile uh, were big, were big uh, towns and, and, and sizable harbors in some ways, but they can also do some of the smaller areas around the, the southern coast. So Glasgow had this, this huge kind of maritime connection, as well as all the ancillary industries. So rope making, uh, iron forging, copper smithing, all these kind of things that go into the building that. 
and later into the 19th century, Glasgow is known as the second city of empire because it has, um, or the, the workshop of the world. And it has all these kind of industrial kind of industries, industrial innovation. But at the time of the Civil War, primarily it was these, these fast uh, paddle steamers uh, that had the most impact in the, in the American city. Fantastic. And something I really want to get into because this was something that I actually didn't know about blockade running. When I read about blockade running, from my knowledge, my limited knowledge, I had this image of ships actually sailing directly out of Charleston, directly to Liverpool, and back and forth. And you just described that the perfect blockade runners were not necessarily ocean-going vessels. So could you just discuss uh, like sort of that, that route, that French connection, if we will, that, that <laughs> secret route through, I, I think it was through Nassau, right, that yeah, most of these um, ships were operating? Yeah, it, it's one of those things that, um, I mean, when I came to do the, the work on this display, it wasn't something that I knew a lot about. You know, I, I did some, I was history in high school and I did some stuff at university and college, but blockade running and the whole kind of logistical chain of uh, supply chain isn't really discussed too much. And it did have a huge impact on, on the outcome of the war. And I, I should say that, you know, it wasn't blockade running to the north, obviously, but there was still British-made goods going to the north, weapons. Were. But what it involved was a, a trade from, from British and European ports that would then take larger merchant vessels down to the ports in the Atlantic and the Caribbean. Primarily, these were Nassau and the Bahamas, Bermuda, uh, St. George in Bermuda, and to a lesser extent, Havana in Cuba. And in those ports, the larger ships would unload all their cargo. And then they would be transferred onto the blockade, onto the faster, less ocean-worthy vessel. Now, they could still make these journeys, don't get me wrong, but the natural kind of hazards did claim their own amount of ships as well. It wasn't just you know, Union gunboats who were chasing these vessels down. Some of them didn't even you know, make British, leave British waters because the, the storms were so bad, or just because the waves you know, loosened the hull and, and, and created leakages. So in from Britain, came the, the, the large merchant ships, everything was unloaded in these ports, which up until the 1860s were not big trading ports. You know, uh, Nassau and St. George's were, were pretty much backwaters at that time. And even places like Wilmington, uh, it had a maritime history, obviously, but it was not a major port. Uh, the best thing for it was it had great railway connections. So it had railroads that could uh, go up to the north as well as south and west. So that, that's why the kind of the, the, the wider uh, blockade running isn't just the ships going back and forth to Nassau and, and to Charleston and so on. There's a whole supply chain running from in Britain where you have Confederate agents or private companies and privateers purchasing all the goods, arranging it to get sent over to the Caribbean or get transshipped and picked up by these faster, more sleek uh, vessels that can then wait for the new moon or, or good conditions to make it uh, as hard as possible for lurking Union warships catch them as they try to run into the southern port. General Lee was sitting in the saddle quite frustrated, rotating a map, and he turned to General Longstreet and says, General Longstreet, I, for the life of me, cannot seem to find where we are. General Longstreet looked over at General Lee, said, well, according to the Civil War Trail sign over there, we're not far from Gettysburg. Well, I'm not sure if that's how exactly it went, but I do know that Civil War trails mark Civil War battlefields and Civil War sites across the United States, and they are a great sponsor of ours. So if you want to learn more about Civil War trails and how to plan your next Civil War vacation, please check out the link in the show notes. 
And uh, actually, my next question, uh, I think this is the perfect time for it, comes from one of my Patreon supporters, my Patreon patrons. Quick plug, if people want their questions to be asked to these experts, uh, you can use the link in the show notes to become a patron on Patreon and ask your questions on there, and I will submit them to the experts. So this one actually comes from Mike, and he wants to know what specific cargo was traded with the Confederacy? Well, it's a good question. Uh, thanks very much for that. Um, basically, almost anything and everything was going into the blockade. In terms of kind of military necessity, let's start with that. At the start of the war, uh, the, the, the states that seceded did not have a large industrial ca uh, capacity on their own in terms of, you know, armories, shipbuilding, uh, gun manufacturing, things like that. A lot of those were in the north or in areas that weren't accessible to Confederacy. So in terms of military items coming through, you have everything from small arms, swords, uh, pistols, cannons, uh, gunpowder, the, the raw materials and chemicals you need to produce this. You also have you know, iron plating to, to, plate, to, to plate warships. And then you have uh, blankets, uh, material to make uniforms, uh, shoes, boots. Towards the end of the war, even food was coming through. And that was just kind of the military side of things. You also have a lot of these vessels that were private vessels. They weren't either owned by the states or by the Confederacy. And they were bringing in just anything that would make a profit. So you could have clothing, you could have fancy goods, you could have furniture, you could have liquors and, and things like that. And all of those things would, be, uh, would come through the blockade. The interesting thing, when you start going through the kind of cargo manifests that still survive at Bermuda, or if you look at some of the newspapers in Charleston and Wilmington, sometimes they're not as detailed as you'd like them to be. Sometimes you'd really like to know exactly what came in on that ship or every little thing, but they might say, you know, 30 boxes of merchandise doesn't really help you. Um, now, there might be a good reason for that, because as these ships were leaving, leaving Nassau or Bermuda, most of the time, it, they weren't saying they were going to Wilmington. They would say they would, they would go to another neutral port. They wouldn't necessarily list all the things on the cargo, many of which might be contraband or munitions of war. So it's one of those things that if, if you're caught, you plead a bit of ignorance in that kind of way. On the other way, coming out of the South is, is primarily cotton. Cotton, uh, turpentine, uh, other um, items that could sell in Britain to, to, to then make the profits to buy all the supplies. Uh, one other thing is, you know, people were going in and out on these vessels. Mail was going in and out on these vessels. It wasn't just, uh, they weren't just cargo chips for kind of the raw materials of, of the Confederacy and, and the states of. So uh, it really was kind of the merchant, na merchant navy of, of the Confederacy in the South during those four years of the war. Right. And I think that one of the famous stories, right, is uh, Confederate General Beauregard's hair during the war goes gray. And it's not necessarily due to stress, but it's because he can't get the hair dye from the <laughs> because of the blockade. Right. Uh, so that's one of the stories I know. But another thing I want to ask, you mentioned how cotton was coming out of the South, right? Could you talk a little bit about uh, cotton, king cotton? Uh, I know you mentioned some of it in your book, that sort of king cotton diplomacy. Sure. I mean, at, at the start of the war, the, the Confederacy, it was a nascent state. It was looking for support. And one of its first ideas was it would withhold the cotton export to go primarily to Britain. And at the time, Britain's not whole economy, but a huge amount of its economy depended on exported, finished cotton goods. So fabric, clothing, bread, and so on. And most of that is coming from the Southern states. So the Confederacy thought if they withheld that from the start, they could you know, hurt Britain economically and then convince them to come in on the side of the Confederacy. 
either you know, actually come in on the side of the Confederacy, you know, using the Royal Navy, which would just you know, wipe the, the seas with the, the Federal Navy, you know, send in regiments from Canada and open up a second front. That, that's a bit of a pipe dream. But if that doesn't happen, at least maybe they recognize you and your rebellion becomes more of a, uh, a fight between two countries. It's not a rebellion. It's more of a, not a civil war, but a war. And that was kind of initial kind of phase of it. Now, that didn't work out for the Confederacy because very soon they realized they were holding back all these basically you know, the money and profits and they needed supplies. They needed all these things I just mentioned about military supplies, the food, clothing, boots. So they started releasing the cotton. And then that was coming over Britain. And merchants here in Britain were finding huge amounts of profit. It's something that can be bought for you know, 25 cents for a, a cotton bond, for example, that's being sold in Britain by these agents of the Confederacy or agents of the States. You could buy it for 25 cents, but then sell it for a dollar for here. So there's huge profits to be made. And then there's also huge profits to be made on these ships that are then eyed up to become blockade runners. Uh, initially, they, they're just bought up from the, the, the routes that are already uh, being, they're being used for. So if they're going over to Dublin from Glasgow, uh, towards the end of the war, they're being purpose-built. They're being you know, sent in. We want a blockade runner better suited for the open waves. They don't have any luxuries. I mean, uh, most of these uh, vessels had some kind of you know, first-class parlor or something like that. None of that happened towards the end. Most of them were actually ripped out during the war to make room for, for more cargo. So the king cotton didn't work, but the selling of cotton bales for massively inflated prices did start to work. And then that allowed the profits to be returned to whatever state or confederacy or private individual that then allowed that to then be guns, weapon, weapons, munitions to be purchased. And th that's where uh, Jonas Wiley and a lot of the, the, the British sailors and officers come into play. Because if you're going to purchase these vessels, you need someone to crew them. You, you need experienced people. And another thing that the South was lacking were, was a, a merchant marine, naval officers, as well as you know, able seamen, uh, engineers, and so on. So there's a huge amount, you know, over 50%. Usually, I find when you, when you find a crew list that exists, sometimes even more, um, are European, <clears throat> European British sailors who decide that there's a big profit, just like cotton is a big profit. There's a big profit to be made uh, manning these ships that are running well. So that's a great segue to my next question, uh, which is in regards to motivations. I know they keep talking about Britain having a hard time recognizing the Confederacy because they cannot support a nation that condones slavery, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I think Britain at the time had pretty much waged wars against uh, slave traders and that sort That's of right, thing. Yeah. Interestingly enough, I find it interesting that in the Blockade Runners by Jules Verne, he deals with this sort of moral issue where the main character, the Blockade Runner, states that even though he's against slavery, He's all about free trade and, and profits, you know, that, that shouldn't be mm. infringed by yeah. that, that, which he mentions. But so I, I find that very complicated. Do you know the motivations? I think some of them is interesting is that there's these British naval officers who are on furlough as well, who are they're in the Navy, but they're even willing to go on these adventures. What, what is the, the motivations and did you happen to find uh, Wiley right about any of his motivations? Yeah, I mean, Massive contradiction there, you know, the kind of the, you just said about the Jules Verne kind of character. Um, I think primarily motivation was money. It really was. We'll get into to Wiley's story here in a second, but um, just before he became a blockade runner, 
he was a, a first mate on a on a sailing but on a steam vessel and he was getting paid eight pounds a month and that was probably okay don't get me wrong but you know captains on some uh, on private vessels can make up to five thousand uh, dollars a captain on on the advance which was owned by the state so you, you didn't have massive profits he was still on a thousand dollars and that was per run that was in a month and you could maybe even slip in two runs a month, depending on uh, if, if your cargo was waiting for you. I mean, there was vast profits to be made. And from a British perspective, there was very little downside because if you take, for, if you take away the kind of the natural side of things, you know, you could always get swamped and you could, you could sink. If you take that away. The whole thing about blockade running and the legal side of it was that if you're spotted, uh, you can run and ho- hopefully as, as a blockade runner, you'll escape. But if you're captured, as long as you don't fire back, as long as you don't you know, put up a fight. Now, the rules and regulations were if you're not an American citizen, if you're not someone from Virginia, North Carolina, if you could prove you're from Britain or some of that, uh, the, rule, the law was basically you could be held, but only for a limited time. It basically just had to be released as long as you uh, abided by these kind of rules of neutrality. So if you're a, a British Royal Naval officer, who's on furlough, or if you're a merchant officer, uh, engineer, like I said, anything like that, then as, as long as you, you know, abide by those rules, if you make one successful trip, you know, you're probably making maybe six months, maybe in a year's worth wages, just, just on that one trip. Um, and if you do get captured, you get released, you can just hop on a ship, either bound for Liverpool or even Nassau, get on another one of these vessels and come back. Um, and it wasn't until quite late in the war that Lincoln and, and the North basically said, well, enough of this. We'll, we'll pass a resolution saying, look, if you're a blockade runner, you need to leave America now. If you're not out in, in, in 14 days, and this is 1865, so very end of the war, then we're going to hold you liable. So for a British officer or, or a European sailor, it, it was, uh, it was a, a massive opportunity to make money. And at the end of the day, like you said, supporting uh, a nation uh, that had slavery, you know, running guns, you know, you're, 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 you're continuing hardship both for on the home front and on the battlefront. But to you, you're probably not facing much kind of danger yourself. And the amount of money is, you know, it's stunning amounts to some people. So you could see where that could be a very, very keen motivator for lots of sailors. As they say, everyone has their price, I guess. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's get into Wiley a little bit, because I find him a very interesting character. It seems like he was very well-liked, kind of a jovial spirit, but he didn't get a start as a sailor, right? No, I mean, a very interesting story. And um, I'll get to a point here, um, the most interesting part of my whole research into Jonas Wiley. But um, yeah, he's born in 1828. He's, he's born in a little village north of, north, north of Kelso, in the Scottish borders. His father was a gardener. And he was down in that part of the world, uh, helping the local lord redo his gardens, uh, originally from Fife, I said. And after a couple of years, uh, his father, Alexander, he, he met a girl down there. They got married, had a couple of kids, Jonas Wiley, who at the time was, was born as John Wiley. And they came back to Fife. And it, it all, by all accounts, young John Wiley uh, was a, quite a good, uh, had a good mind to him. Didn't really fancy being a gardener. He actually um, got a job as a local school teacher for a year or so. He was only 17 or 18, so he must have had some kind of intelligence to him. And then he gets awarded a place at St. Andrews University. And you're only looking at 20 or 30 students a year getting places there. St. Andrews is, is very close to him, only maybe 10 or 20 miles away, one of the oldest universities in Scotland. And he does a couple of years there, does all the kind of usual traditional courses, you know, Greek, Latin, mathematics, uh, 
philosophy and so on. But he doesn't finish his time there. I don't know why. He comes back and, and does a couple more years of teaching. And, and no, no one else in his family that I've been able to find had any kind of maritime connection. They were all in, in, in the land. Even his sister became a, kind of a gardener. But then something happened to make him leave. And this is where I want to bring up something. Because as I was going through all this kind of stuff, you're going through mariner records, going through um, ship logs. And I can tell you right now, and I'll tell you, your, your, your listeners, ship logs are not as interesting as they make out to be on Star Trek and things like that. They're pretty much, you know, pretty boring stuff. Uh, but occasionally you can find a, a nugget there. But um, I'm going through all that and I'm doing all this newspaper research and I'm finding out these, these lectures. And then this thing pops up that he was in this magazine called The People's Friend. And I really need to explain this to your listeners because The People's Friend, uh, it's still going today, founded in 1869. So then, as now, was a primarily women's magazine, a working women's at the time, full of things like romantic stories, but also things like biographies of famous Scots and also kind of people who came up from nothing to become something of their lives. And I found this this article, and it, it's from 1889, so 25 years after the war, and it's all about his life and, and reading through it. And the stuff that's in there, it is like a, an adventure story, like, like a boy's own adventure story full of, you know, shark attacks and poisonings and almost, you know, the threat of cannibalism, death and romance and reading through it and like, man, uh, this doesn't, this, this sounds a bit fancy. Like we were talking about at the start about this kind of idea of the character rather than the actual person. But amazingly, if you go through and, and you start marrying up what he says happened at certain times and his maritime records, and the newspaper accounts, the archival thing, it all really matched up. And it allowed me to give much more of a kind of a personal side of, of Jonas Wiley, um, all the way during his early maritime career and then during the Civil War. And I, I then I'll, I digress now and go back to say, well, he was the teacher and then something happened and it doesn't say directly in the people's friend. It sounds like there was some kind of altercation, uh, some kind of maybe argument over a woman of some sort. In a local newspaper, the local teacher, John Wiley, is declared dead and he wasn't dead. It said he basically, it says he, he came out the pub and he was run over by a car Friday night. Uh, he wasn't that. Soon after that, uh, he goes to sea. He spends the next 10 years, um, he started, he's, he's 24 years old. It's quite old to be kind of a, a novice seaman. He starts as an apprentice, so like the lower rung, and works all the way up, uh, third mate, second mate, first mate, at, at the first opportunity. So all of these grades have, you have to be at sea for six years or four years, or you have to be a second mate for so long. But at the first opportunity, he makes those kind of past examinations. And during that time, he sails every continent uh, in the world. He goes to Australia, uh, South America, uh, all in merchant ships. And this is where the people's friend kind of fills in some of these stories. But his connection to the blockade starts, interestingly enough, not in Nassau or Wilmington, but for you, Paul, it starts in New York. He's on a ship called the Hope, which is a steamer, usually going from Liverpool to, to Bordeaux to France. But in January of 1862, it gets commissioned to take a thousand bales of cotton from Liverpool to New York City. And this is cotton that's come through the blockade. It's southern cotton that's come all the way over to Liverpool that's now going to New York because the, the mills in Britain needed this cotton. The mills in Lancashire needed it, as we talked about. Also the mills in New England, the, the American mills that depended on the southern cotton also still needed this kind of stuff. So his first connection isn't running the blockade per se, but it's actually taking blockade running cotton to New York. And he's there for about a month and then he returns back to Liverpool, which was his base during this time 
during his maritime career. And very soon after, he takes his examination master, so he can be the captain of the ship. And his first ship is uh, the Benita. It's a, a screw steamer, uh, only built uh, two years previously uh, here in Glasgow. So it was a Clyde-built ship. And he takes that ship over from Liverpool to Nassau with the intention of running the blockade. This ship itself had already run the blockade once. It had run the blockade of Charleston earlier in Egypt. But as I mentioned uh, a bit before, as the war progressed, these kind of larger uh, maritime uh, merchant ships became uh, they, they, were just, they weren't viable anymore. They, they, they weren't be able to, to, to beat the strengthening blockade. So he makes it over to Nassau. Uh, it did have a bunch of plate. So plate armor was the main uh, cargo. That gets transshipped. He's not able to run the blockade. Uh, must have been disappointing for someone. But the, the, the thing is, and, and the, the, the connection really with the blockade starts on his way back to Britain, on his voyage back to Britain on the Benita. He's joined by three passengers who had been sent by the newly elected governor of North Carolina, Zebulon Vance, a young man, same similar age to Jonas Wiley, so early 30s. And when he got elected, he wanted to get into this blockade running trade, he wanted to be able to supply the state's regiments, as well as the people, with the, the needed equipment. So what you need to do is you need to send people over to Britain to sell your cotton and to buy the equipment and to buy the, the ship. And there's three people that join him on the ship, and they're the, the three agents for North Carolina. So the kind of that initial disappointment as someone who's there to make a lot of money, suddenly you got three guys that are passengers and you can only imagine, unfortunately nothing survives in terms of a diary this time, but you can imagine them having dinner uh, or having a drink together or just being on a ship together and them saying, well, we're looking for some good ships and a crew to crew them. And why are they saying, well, I could probably scrounge you up some people and then I'm, I'm, I'm experienced, you know? So think it's about not only it. what you know, it's who you know, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll tell you what, it's not just who you know. One of the guys, John White, who's the kind of the business guy, he's coming over to sell the cotton bounds. He is from Scotland. He's Scottish by birth. Not just that, he's from Fife, Kirkcaldy. So if, if, if the families didn't know each other, and they might have known each other, they would have at least been able to talk about the old country, things like that, and, and, and the area. So these kind of things, you know, kind of fate or whatever you want to call it, because the next time we find Wiley, he's aboard the Lord Clyde. This is the vessel that's purchased by the other agent, uh, Thomas Crossan. Thomas Crossan was an experienced naval officer uh, in the U.S. Navy. He gave up his commission at the start of the war. He commanded some uh, naval vessels up to this point. He came over to find a ship and to purchase it. But it's uh, the next thing you find out about Wiley is he is... In all the local newspapers and all the, the maritime records, he's the one who is commanding this vessel, the master of the vessel, to leave Britain. And this was one of the interesting things when I was doing my research. I think as a historian and yourself and some of your listeners will find out is when you're doing research and you, you find something out and you think, oh, that kind of goes against what everything else says in the other history books. No, is that right? I mean, I'll have to dig a bit deeper and find out some more sources. And it's, as I said, it's Wiley's name who appears in local newspapers and the customs logs saying it's leaving Britain. Because in most books you'll read on the war, it'll say Thomas Crossan was in command of, of this vessel. And sure enough, he was on it. But even, even in the crew list from 1863 of May of that year when it came over, he's not listed as a passenger. So if he is on it, you know, he's kind of keeping a low profile. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, I speculate a little bit. Because like I said, there's no diary at that time, but Wiley was an experienced mariner who had experience on these kind of vessels, on high, what you call like the high-tech vessels of the day. So he had that connection. He had experience where Crossan wasn't. He was, he was an older man 
more experience with sailing vessels. He had some experience with steamers, don't get me wrong. Not these kind of sometimes they called greyhounds of the sea. So Wiley had that experience. So if you read the current books on it, sometimes it would be called the sailing master. And that's kind of, it's, it's an interesting term. It's kind of the, the person kind of maybe runs the ship, but Thomas Crossan and later on another um, Confederate officer, John Julius Guthrie, uh, were either in command or seen as kind of a supercargo. So kind of there making sure the interests of the state were being upheld. But it's definitely Wiley who takes the vessel away from Glasgow in May of 1863. The other reason that is kind of important or interesting is that if you have a vessel that's British registered, British flagged, British crewed, British commanded, if you do get searched, uh, even on your way to Nassau, Bay, even in neutral waters, there's, there's almost nothing they can hold you on. There's no kind of evidence to say it looks like you're going to be a blockade runner because you're that kind of vessel, but legally they can't catch you, they can't hold you. So I think I think a little bit of that played into part of how Wiley got the gig and why his name is you know, from the start listed as as the commander of the vessel. Because there's no doubt later in the war, after his first uh, voyage in, that Crossan is listed um, as the commander in some of the cargo listings or in the customs listings. And then later on, the other commander, John Julius Guthrie, but Wiley was on board from day one and he continued all the way to the end of his blockade running career about 15 months later. So it's, it's very interesting in terms of, you know, thinking about how, how these guys got on board and then what was their role and then how they're described going forward, either in contemporary reports, which there are, there are several you know, diaries or accounts of, of runs. And I think we're going to talk about that in a second. Then you have some kind of later kind of recollections. And, and for example, is a 25 year later. Some of those things don't match up perfectly. But as a historian, it's kind of being able to bring those things together and kind of tick some boxes, put them next to each other. Do they match up? And if they don't match up, can you figure out exactly why they don't? Or can you speculate to a level? And then when you do speculate, give the reasons why it might be A or B. I think I've done that a little bit in the book when there's no primary evidence here and there, but it wasn't something that I thought, oh, no, he's, he's the captain from the start. He's the most important from the start. That's not the case, but he's definitely there the whole time as the blockade runner. Absolutely. It's very interesting to get into the legality of things. And of course, you know, a lot of this stuff is, has to be done underneath the table, you know? So of course, you're not going to find everything on paper, right? Probably no, no, more was, of course, yeah. right? More was probably mentioned by ear, you know, in a room somewhere, you know, if only yeah. we could be that fly on that wall, right? It's actually amazing how much does survive, really. Right. And right. especially now with, I mean, I, I can, it's amazing how much you can find using the internet these days in terms of, you know, archives that are either a digitized, where you can actually, I mean, the Library of Congress has, uh, sorry, the National Archives in New York has the full prize court documents for the advance. We'll talk about how it got, got captured in a second. But there's about 250 documents from everything from Donuts Wiley's deposition to the fees paid for the towing company that, that towed the vessel when it got to New York. And, you know, 20 years ago, that would have been listed somewhere, but you'd have to go to New York to find that out. Or you'd have to come to London to find out some of the crew listings that I was able to get or go all the way to Australia and get it. So digitization is amazing, but also at least knowing where these things live. So most of the records, uh, actually all of the records in terms of the, the operation of the ship are in the North Carolina State Archives, uh, most from the Governor, Governor Zebulon Vance papers. And although they're not digitized at the moment, they are at least scanned to a level. Well, they're digitized in that way. They're just not available, say, online. And 
my, my contact there, and I always give a shout out to Van Evans, who's the archivist there. Uh, he, he was amazing in being able to provide me a huge amount of information. And every year more that, more that becomes available to historians, to amateur folk, to anybody interested in the topic. Um, so it's amazing what does survive. And also, it also makes you think, you know, what else is out there? There must be some things in private collections or photographs people have or family stuff that might still be out there. And I always think there's always level for more kind of uh, academic research, more, more kind of levels of, of research. It always gives you a chance that, that the next generation to reevaluate. So oh, it, 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 it's great. But like you said, you know, some of it must have been down to knowing the right folk, being in the right place at the right time, uh, right. handshakes and so on. But there are some, there are some actually some of his paycheck, what we call what they as paychecks um, in the state archives in North Carolina. So there is some physical stuff you can point. Right, right. And of course, you know, I have to mention my girlfriend, she's an archivist and she lets me know how important <laughs> she is all the time. So yes, it's yes. <laughs> very, you know, very important. Another thing you mentioned that I found interesting when you talked about New York and how there are many you know, factories in the North who need Southern cotton and they're actually now getting it through Britain now. Yeah. Uh, because of the blockade. And I find that interesting because if you look at uh, Fernan Mayor Fernando Wood, who was the mayor of New York City during the Civil War, he actually talked about how before the war started, he thought New York City should secede and says, we're the biggest <laughs> port in the United States. So imagine if we secede and we're still yeah. able to trade with the South and and still um, uh, trade with Britain, you know. And so really, it is amazing that Although it didn't work, that idea of King Cotton was it was a real thing. It was, you know? yeah. and it's it's not just things coming by Liverpool. I mean, th there'll be not not the amount of stuff coming through, but there's things going through lines, isn't there? It, a lot of times you think, okay, it's a war. There's a definitive line. One side's faction A and one side's faction B, and the only thing that gets goes across that line are bullets. Well, that's not the case. Now, there's people going across that line, and there's also merchandise going across that line, as always. If you look a bit deeper, you find a lot more interesting stories, than just a simple paragraph in a history book. Well, speaking about interesting stories, I think we have to get into the stories of adventure here. Can we talk a little about the, the runs that uh, uh, Wiley conducted? Sure, yeah, um, he's on board for the whole time. So when it leaves Glasgow, uh, it first makes its way down to Cardiff uh, in Wales. And the reason why it's going down there is to collect some really good coal, uh, Southwest Welsh coal, is some of the best steam coal in the world at this time. It really uh, helps out your boilers get across the Atlantic. And even there, he's harassed. The vessel's harassed by a, a Union uh, official to say, yeah, that looks like a blockade runner. Or it might be a new armed raider. That was the thing, because the Alabama was just out, out doing its thing at the time. From there, it comes over to Bermuda first and then down to Nassau. And then that starts the next 15 months where it completes 15 runs in and out of the so that's from either Bermuda or Nassau into Wilmington. And this, since this vessel is owned by the state of North Carolina, it's always into Wilmington. And it's pretty much always carrying the necessary things or the things de de deemed by the state to be what, what needs to come. And his first, uh, the first run is in late June of 1863. And up until now, there was no kind of, um, there was no diary crossing. I don't think there's a, a Thomas Marl crossing. I haven't found any of his own records. We just know that when it left um, Nassau and when it got to Wilmington, well, Wiley recounts it in The People's Friend. And I should say The People's Friend, 1889, it's written by a gentleman called the Reverend Peter Anton, who was a friend of Jonas Wiley, a good friend of Jonas Wiley, who had been a reverend in one of the local churches where Wiley was living uh, in Fife. So his account of, of the first run says here, um, 
the captain and the pilot were on the bridge and all the men at the wheel standing quite near, all the firemen in the stock hole, all the sailors were standing around the bulwarks, scanning every point, and the lookout men were on the paddle boxes, one on each. Anxiously, they looked for what did, they did not want to see. From one of the paddle boxes came a dis distinct whisper, a steamer, three points to the starboard bow, how standing, northward, all right, all right, starboard a little, and steady, steady, and the danger passes. They creep slowly on. Another whisper from the paddle box, a vessel right ahead, sir. Pilot hints, she keeps a careless lookout. Says one on the paddle box, men, scarcely above his breath, she's moving southeast. East ahead is the captain's order. A few minutes of almost intolerable suspense and the outer cordon is safely packed. Slowly, they glide along till they come within the second line, two vessels to the port side, from the husky voice of a seaman in the bow. Another, a quarter of a point further to the port. Another, right ahead and heading down on us. A woo and a whiss, hiss of a lively rocket. We are seen in full speed ahead. So you can see that's the first run into Wilmington. And it has that sense of action and adventure. Now, I think some of this is a bit of a literary kind of license, but it gives you that idea of what the crew on these vessels were looking at. By the middle of 1863, the, the Union Navy and the admirals in charge had set up two cordon lines around Wilmington and, and, and Charleston specifically. The outer cordon tend to be kind of slower, larger vessels, and the inner cordon were kind of faster. Sometimes even some of these blockade runners that had been captured to be taken and repurposed as blockaders. They were the faster ones. And you can, you can hear from that story there that it's at night, they're slowly creeping past, but they're ready to go quick. They're ready to let the engines rip, uh, which was one of the names of the blockade runner. It was called Let It Rip. Um, and once they get past that outer cordon, and if they get past that inner cordon, if they get close enough to the guns of either Fort Fisher, which guarded the new inlet of the Cape Fear River, or Fort Caswell, which guarded the old inlet of the Cape Fear River, then those guns could ward off in any federal naval vessels. So once they got there, they were quite home free because they still had to deal with the shifting sands and the, and the tides of the Cape Fear when it met the Atlantic. But you can kind of sense that kind of anticipation, that kind of energy that was happening on board the ship. Now, an interesting, interesting happened after that, because although that is kind of new to the historic record, that kind of account, when the advance, and it had been renamed from the Lord Clyde to the advance by this time, when it makes it into the river, it's supposed to spend several days at the quarantine station. Yellow fever was always a problem in places like Bermuda and Nassau. It was, it was high summer, so you're looking at June. They're very concerned about bringing the yellow fever to Wilmington. It had already happened once. However, Governor Vance had been wired, had been telegraphed, to say that the, the, the vessel's in. And he, he rushed down from Raleigh, and he wanted to see his investment. He wanted to see this new vessel. He wanted to meet the crew and congratulate Thomas Crossan and, and meet Thomas Wiley. So he jumps on board the ship and he says, right, let's bring it up to Wilmington. You know, th this is a big political moment for him. He's only been governor for six months, nine months or so. So it's an opportunity for him to show off that his policy has worked. And the Confederate officer at the time down there said, no, 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 we can't do that. We're here at, um, at quarantine. And this is recorded uh, a bit later on through um, James Sprunt, who's one actually a, a member of the crew at one point, but a North Carolina historian. And basically the governor said, nope, we're going to go. So they come up to Wilmington, pull into the docks there, are able to unload the, the kind of first cargoes. And unfortunately, there isn't a full list, but there are kind of medicines and other things like that. So it gives you that kind of sense of immediacy of the governor wanting to show off, but also that kind of action and adventure that you would have as a crew coming in on, on any of these kind of runs, much less your first. 
That's great. Now, I, I love that. And uh, one thing I want to get into, though, is that although this is a great success story. Wiley did face uh, being captured, right? He it was did, all, yeah. It, was all, it wasn't all so great every time. No, no, no. Of, of course not. I mean, every time you're trying to, to run in or out, the inward or outward, you, know, you always have that. You always face that. Over, over the next 15 months, you know, they make 15 successful uh, in and out, so seven and a half full voyages. And, and, and also a couple of voyages in between Nassau and Bermuda. And every time, you're always worried about that. Now, it might almost be a bit old hat by, by the seventh full voyage, but you're still worried about uh, being captured. And the luck of, of the advance uh, would run out uh, in September of 1864. So by this time, Wiley had been aboard from day one, but there had been other Confederate commanders. But on February 29th of 1864, he's given ultimate command of the vessel. Because uh, John Julius Guthrie, the next uh, the previous commander, had some disputes with the governor about pay, and there were some issues about possibly bringing in some extra items either going in or out above and beyond what they were allowed to do. So that was that was looked upon nicely on a, on a state-owned vessel. So Wiley, from February of 1864, was fully in command. He comes out, actually comes back to Liverpool in the summer to get full repairs of the vessel. But in August of 1864, it makes a run into Wilmington. And for the next month, it's, it's, it's almost stuck there for various reasons. One is the blockade's getting really strong for that point. They try to make eight runs out of, of the Cape Fear. They're either held up by, they can't find a pilot, or they actually collide with another blockade runner, or they get caught on the rip. Uh, one of the problems with the, a lot of the runners, if they had still, if they're, they're narrow drafted, but they could still get caught on some of the sandbars. Um, Wiley was actually feeling a bit ill at the time. He might have had malaria through um, others is, is visits to the, the Caribbean or, or previous maritime life. But on the night of, the, of September 9th, 1864, they finally make it out. And it looks like they're going to make a successful run. But they get spotted. They get spotted by the USS Santiago de Cuba, uh, one of the more large vessels, the paddle steamer. It, it can put in some speed, but nowhere near what the advance could do. The reason why it gets spotted and ultimately caught is it's forced to use some of the poor coal the good steam coal was given over to the CSS Tallahassee, which was in port at the same time. So the Confederate Navy commandeered the good coal. The, the blockade runner had to take kind of the, the poorer uh, coal, which put out a big black plume of smoke and also limited your speed. Couldn't do the 18 knots it was used to. So after quite a long chase into the, 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 the 10th of September, overnight, Santiago de Cuba catches up with the advance and, and captures it. Uh, Wiley, as the commander, ba basically is forced to confront the, the commander of the Santiago de Cuba, Captain Glisson, and he and two other uh, crew members are taken to New York as part of the prize court adjudication. Because here is the other side of making money in the blockade. All the sailors running the blockade, they hopefully get to make a lot of money. But the guys on the federal ships, Santiago de Cuba and things like that, if you capture one of these vessels and it gets deemed a lawful prize, it gets sold off, it gets auctioned to the highest bidder, and all the cargo gets sold off. And that gets divvied up between the admiral in charge and everyone involved in the capture. So if you're just a single ship with a couple hundred, maybe 150 crew members, everyone gets to share. And that could be, to a sailor, six months a year's wages. So you don't want to fire on them too much. You don't want to sink them. You don't want them running aground. Uh, you don't want them escaping. But if you do capture them, there's, there's big money to be made on both sides. Uh, while he makes it to New York, gets brought up in front of the prize court judge. All of this is recorded in the National Archives there in New York, and it's all online these days. It's fantastic. And um, 
his deposition is very dry, as you'd expect from a legal deposition. They say, you know, where are you from? And did you know what you had on board? He's like, oh, no, no. The, the person knew, uh, they just loaded it. I, I, I was just going, you know, whatever. Um, because he knew that as, as long as you didn't fight back, as long as you didn't make a big fuss, you'd be released. Uh, and sure enough, he was. So the, the, three, the three of them, it was, it was him, the second engineer, Charles Harris, and the purser, Thomas Carter. They all went up, gave the depositions. A couple of days later, came back to Britain. They're on, a, they're on a, uh, the RMS uh, Asia, which arrives into Liverpool in October. So you know, we're talking like a week or two after capture. And then he gets another command. He, he takes another one of these, these steamers out, a purpose-built one this time, that had been building in, in Glasgow, called the Susan Bairn. He brings it over to Nassau. He was, he was a delivery guy at that point. But then in Nassau, he takes command of the Deer, another purpose-built blockade runner. And we're now looking at January of 1865. We get very close to the end of the war. Blockade running still going on, but it's in the dying deaths. And he takes the Deer, not to Wilmington this time, but he's going to go into Charleston. Uh, never been there before. Uh, unfortunately for him, they run in on the 18th of February, which is the night Charleston falls. And the, the lights on Sullivan's Island, uh, which is on, in the approach city, had been changed and the deer grounds right there. And so once again, he's captured. He's captured by the USS Catskill, which is a, a small, what, what do you call it, like a, like a pillbox monitor, you know, just with one, one turret. You're not an ocean-going vessel, never be able to capture a, a blockade runner in the high seas, uh, but overrun by that. Captured so twice in six months. It gets taken not to New York this time, but Boston. And this is all in the People's Friend again, although the prize court documents are once again in the Boston archive. Uh, and the People's Friend, he says, well, he was a bit concerned that as being captured twice, he might have to face imprisonment at Fort Warren outside Boston Harbor, which does not have the best reputation. Um, and he executes an elaborate escape. I don't want to give spoilers to your, to your listeners here, but let's just say when you read it, you think, no, 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 no. This is just complete you know, fabrication. This is just telling a good story. You want your readers to ha have a lovely kind of time of listening to it. But once again, going through the kind of the factual records, I, I was able to marry up most of what he said. Uh, so I'll give him the benefit of the doubt for a couple of other He comes back to Britain after that. But weirdly, um, he doesn't retire. He doesn't kind of come back and in enjoy his wealth if he didn't make wealth. Some of these captains came back and built quite fancy houses or bought land. Wiley actually spends another two years at sea. So either he loved being a mariner, which maybe, or he still need to make a bit of money, maybe. Uh, he actually takes two former blockade runners to South America in 1867, because there's a conflict raging there between Brazil and Argentina, Uruguay, and Paraguay. He takes two of them down there as delivery. And then for the rest of his life, he goes back to the farm that his father had, uh, had basically rented off the lo local lord. Uh, doesn't own it, uh, doesn't purchase any, any major... Um, like I said, houses or land or anything like that becomes a kind of a, a stand-up member of the community. And the most interesting thing to me was, and I'll go back to it, but I, I said basically the start of this was he started giving these lectures about his time at sea. They almost always were titled uh, Reminiscence of a Life at Sea and Running the Blockade. That was obviously the thing that made him you know, kind of unique in terms of mariners. Um, and as an educated St. Andrews student who in, in, in several of the kind of wartime um, descriptions of the man said he, he was very boisterous and jovial and full of poetry and could tell stories. You can imagine that from, from someone who went to university. He gives at least 25 lectures over the next 30 some years, and they're always in aid of a local charity or someone who'd fallen on hard times, the local church needed a new roof or something like that. And it was, it was always, always the same lecture. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to find a full 
listing of one of those. They're always in the newspaper, some are a bit more descriptive than others. Great to have one of those, just know what he actually said. But by the end of it, you know, by, by the kind of 1890s, he had limelight kind of images, almost like the PowerPoint of the day, some um, nautical pictures on the wall and musical accompaniment with singers or people doing not, uh, maritime songs. And uh, that lasted up until 1901, where he gave the biggest lecture of his life. And you mentioned it earlier, Paul, at, at the big hall in Krakati's, the big room, uh, and the local lord came and gave the introduction to him. And that wasn't an aid of a charity. It was an aid for him. So he got the benefits of that. So I always think that if he did find fortune during the war, and I should have mentioned that as the commander of the advance, he would have gotten $1,000 for completed run. Now, that was, gonna, that was being paid in Confederate money. And by the end of the war, that was worth nothing. But he did get some uh, money to at least start in terms of in pounds sterling. If he found fortune during the war, but at least by the end of his life, it seemed to have left him. He was married in 1869, didn't have any kids, and passed away in, in early 1902. The farm that he, he rented was soon rented out to someone else. Uh, it doesn't exist anymore. It's in the, it's a, it was demolished in the 1930s and now sits under an Asda, which is like a Walmart over here. But it still has the same name. The farm's name is still the name of that area. And Wiley's story, it wasn't, you can't say it was untold or forgotten because he is mentioned, he's mentioned in Stephen Wise's book, he's mentioned in, in several of the, the wartime actual kind of diaries, but I don't think it never gives that kind of connection about how much he actually meant, or, you know, how much of an impact he had on that steamer. And because it was such a successful vessel supplying the state of North Carolina, how much it meant to the ongoing operation of the actual war. Because as Stephen Wise would tell you, that the Confederacy didn't lose battles based on lack of weapon. They always had the opportunity or the ability to get these kind of things brought into them about moving these, those things around, being able to marshal enough men and so on and so forth. And the, the, the regiments in North Carolina did have a, a bit of a reputation of being quite well outfitted. And a lot of that's coming in through the advance. So looking back on, on this kind of story, that, that's what really kind of piqued my interest to like, who was this guy? Turns out, and did he actually, was he important? And that painting I mentioned before um, was done, was owned by Wiley and was donated to us, uh, the Glasgow Museums, in 1917, so 15 years after his death, by his nephew, because he didn't have any children himself. Uh, his wife had passed uh, several years after he passed, and his nephew uh, donated this painting by a quite famous English maritime artist called Samuel Walters. He, he's done several blockade runners. I think he did the Colonel Lamb. He's done a Banshee. So, you know, these are in the Liverpool Museum and other museums across the world. So this was not an amateur artist. This was someone who had a bit of gravitas to him. And this painting you know, probably sat in his lounge on top of his fireplace or something like that. And the one photograph that we have of, of Wiley, and this is going back to one of your recent podcasts, Paul, which I really love with, is, is Ron Coddington. Is that right? The name, yes. Uh, about um, military images and um, looking at all these photographs from the war. We have the one photograph of Wiley, and that came in at the same time as the painting. And basically, sat in a file for almost 100 years. Hadn't been scanned, hadn't been out there, hadn't been in a book. Um, there's a couple other drawings of the man later in life, but no other kind of images. Uh, it'd be great. To, I've been searching. I've been looking. It'd be great to find more. And if any of your listeners know, you know, please get in touch. But it, it's really great opportunity to find a bit of a story. And you think everything in the Civil War has been written about. You, you would think that, right? People make books all the time. But here's an opportunity to, to really actually, as a historian, as a curator, 
to get excited about a story about something that hadn't been told. And obviously, at the end of the day, these guys are running guns for the Confederacy and, and supporting uh, a nation that had slavery and so on. And you always have to put that in your mind as well, but also take that off to the side and say, as well as, you know, let, let's, let's think about the historic record and add to that. And that's what we do as historians. And I'd hope in 50 years time or maybe longer, um, other people come along and revisit the subject and maybe add more to it. Uh, it's a fantastic work. I really enjoyed reading the book, and uh, I really Thank appreciated you, you uh, coming on the show to talk about it. Uh, and of course, like you said, uh, you didn't cover everything in the book. There's a bunch of stuff that my listeners can definitely get from buying the book. Where can they do that? Yeah, you can get it at uh, all your usual kind of online uh, retailers. Uh, it's put by it's put out by Widows Publishing, which is a, a Scottish company. Uh, they've been great. Uh, if you go to their website, if you kind of Google a, a Scottish blockade runner in the American Civil War and Whittles, you'll find out a little bit more uh, about what's in the book, uh, a few of the early reviews that we've had. But if you go to your Amazons and if you go to your Barnes and Nobles, you'll be able to find it there. And also, if you're, if you're, if you're interested, some great books are Stephen Wise's uh, Lifeline of the Confederacy, which is, I mean, he did that in the early 90s without any digital kind of stuff. And the kind of information there is just outstanding. And then from the Scottish side of things, uh, Eric Graham's book, Clyde Built, which not only looks at the ships, but all the kind of intrigue going on around in Scotland at the time between Union and Confederate officers and, and agents and who was ordering ships and who was trying to spot who, who was doing the ordering. Those are two other books. And if you like, if you're interested in Glasgow and Glasgow Museums, if you Google Glasgow Museums, you'll find out about the Transport and Technology Museum, the Riverside, and all of our other venues here in the city. Fantastic. And also, I believe you were on the um, ACW UK History YouTube. Yes. I've actually been on that show as well. Yeah, um, so right. I'm going to do a quick plug for uh, my friend there. So if anyone else wants to hear more, you've done talks as well. So um, yeah, other, yeah. Um, I mean, there's, there's several now out there. And I recently did one for the National Archives because they, they just have, um, other than the state of North Carolina archives, the Boston and the New York archives, the prize courts are two of the, the biggest source of information. And so we had Steve Wise on for that and Van Evans from the North Carolina archives, uh, pretty much telling the story of why, but also encouraging people to use these kind of sources and do your own digging and find out some more stories and, and find out your, your own story to maybe publish something on or do something really good. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Paul. I really appreciate it. And I hope your listeners enjoy. Thank you. Absolutely. And hopefully we can do this again. <laughs> yes, please. That'd be great. I hope you enjoyed that episode while you did the dishes, walk the dog, awaiting your verdict after being captured for blockade running, or dividing up the booty after capturing a blockade runner. I want to thank our sponsors, The Badge Maker, who, as I said in the beginning of the podcast, has teamed up with us to produce some really cool merch. Please check them out in the show notes. I also want to thank Military Images Magazine, another sponsor of ours, who does a great job to bring to light Civil War portrait photography. You know, we can read the firsthand accounts of the Civil War but a picture is worth a thousand words, and sometimes those images tell us more about those who served in the conflict and the conflict itself. So definitely go check out the link in the show notes and subscribe to the magazine uh, as I am subscribed and get a couple copies. They are the best gift right now, and I can say, uh, for any Civil War buff. Um, so if you're thinking of getting something that your Civil War buff in your family, you know he has all, everything already. If he doesn't have a Military Images magazine subscription, you can't go wrong there. So I definitely recommend that. 
Also, check out our website. We've got a lot going on there, as I've mentioned before. And if you want to stay up to date with us, you know, best thing to do is check us out on Facebook, check us out on Instagram. And if you like this episode, please give us a five-star review on iTunes. It means so much, and it helps get the word out. Thank you very much. Have a blessed rest of your day. Stay safe.